You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of all things medical and psychological. We have got the core team in today. I'm Dr Autonomy and we've got Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr Malice and we've got a packed show for you today actually. Firstly, uh, in the spirit of most of the segments that Lolly Doc brings us, he's going to be talking about something really uncontroversial and simple. Um, He's going to be talking about why he thinks private health is a huge problem. And he spends most of his day, well, not most, but a lot of his days in the emergency room. So it's going to be a really interesting perspective, I think, on why he believes private health is such a problem. But uh, yeah, possibly not uncontroversial. We've also got Dr. Malice bringing us a segment today on dissociation in children and adolescents. If you don't know what dissociation is, that's okay. He's going to tell us all about it. And he's going to be talking about it in light of a new book that's just come out called All the Colours of Me. And it's, not surprisingly, a book about dissociation in children and adolescents. So stay tuned for that from Dr Malice. And as always, we're all going to catch up on some uh, light and... uh, slightly more uncontroversial topics that have been in the news in this past week. So why don't you go and grab a cup of coffee if you haven't already had one and settle in as we bring you all this and more until 11 o'clock. Hello, everyone. Good morning. What's with this weather? Oh, my God. Kent, thanks for joining us, pushing the button so beautifully. And as I said, we've got the full cohort today, Dr Malice, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic and myself. Miss Medic, you're looking mighty relaxed. (sighs) Fresh off the plane from Byron Bay. Oh, that's been been really hard. So glorious. So glorious, beautiful place of the world, part of the world. I just had a great time. So I'm feeling a little bit bad that we've come home from, you know, 28 degrees and my daughter is playing her first soccer game this morning <laughs> in the pouring rain. And I have to say that I've kind of very much encouraged her towards a team sport. <laughs> Um, so I'm hoping she comes home smiling. It reminds me of my first ever netball game <laughs> as like a seven-year-old and it was a day like this. It just poured with rain and I was goalkeeper and my team, my team annihilated the other team. So the ball actually didn't come down my end, not even <laughs> once during the whole game. So I just stood there getting drenched in the rain and I remember my mum saying to me afterwards, so how was it? And my response was... Uh, it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be, but it was still pretty good. <laughs> and I, that, all I achieved that's, was get dredged. So that's, I'm hoping that's it's not the same spirit. for my team. I mean, yeah, it's not about it. you, it's the team It's winning. about the team. So. I, I always played wing defence in netball. Do you know so what that position is for? Wing defence is where the worst players exactly. get pushed. <laughs> I was I actually going to ask you. I, was, yeah, yeah. I knew it at the time, but I know it especially now. Yeah. Good morning, Lolly. All Doc, you wing defences out there, we welcome you to listen to it. 
Come and join us. There's still good things in life for you, I promise. I remember getting the most improved award in under... 12 cricket and I felt so demoralised that I'd got the most improved award. You know, it was like that little tiny trophy that you get just Mm. for participating, you know, for the worst player on the team, most improved. Next week is, there's a whole lot of World Days, you know, Mm. like I'm obsessed with World Day. So next week there's World Haemophilia Day, which is on the 17th of April. But then on the 18th of April, there's the World Monuments and Sites Day. (laughs) Right, for the... Big pineapple. I don't know what, yeah, and the big lobster <laughs> and the big ram. The giant prawn. Yeah. What else is there? Big banana. Yeah. And then on Friday, <laughs> see how I moved on from there? I've got, mm, I'm well growing done. up, right? Um, on Friday is the Global Day for Action, Political Action for Cannabis Issues, mm, which, mm. Is, which is a UN-sanctioned Global Day. Surprising. That, I know, surpri- very surprising. Times are moving. Hey, Amazing. How does, one, how, how does one celebrate that day? Um, <laughs> in a fairly upbeat high manner, I would have thought. <laughs> right. Just watch out for the smoke. Yeah. Dr okay. Mallis, good morning. Oh, good morning. And it's wonderful to hear about all these sports. I can segue into the obvious. That you can. That this is the first time we're doing Triple R in the actual 2018 football season. I didn't mm. know until just now. Oh. <laughs> well, you almost came off with the blood rule. I did. <laughs> you scratched yourself. Injury. I know. Well, anyway. in the studio. Anyway. This is a rough, rough studio to be working in, isn't it? But it's such pleasure, yeah. I could just chat to you all in this manner for the full hour, but I suspect we wouldn't have any listeners left at the end, so... What? <laughs> do we have to do some medicine? Let's do some medicine, mm. psychology, catch up. Well, I can keep it in line with what we were talking about in Great. terms of holidays. So I was thinking this morning that I actually do feel quite rejuvenated after having a week away Um, and I was wondering about the science behind what sort of changes might happen to you when you actually have a holiday. So I've done a quick bit of research and there was an article from a couple of years ago um, out of Harvard Medical School and they found that going away for about six days has a real positive impact on your health, including your immune system. And even at a genetic level, there was seen to be some genetic changes that happened to boost your immune system after having a holiday of about six days. And those health changes persist for about a month after you get back from your holiday. Far out. So that's, that's, Quite good to know. And what they also did, because the the people that they studied were um, set into a sort of a a retreat kind of situation and half of the people also did meditation while they were away and they had more health benefits that persisted longer. So the people who were on retreat and meditated? Yes. Mm. But so the ones that were just sort of relaxing in their own way without meditation, without any formal sort of guided relaxation in the holiday still had health benefits for about a month after they got back. I would totally have put my hand up to take part in that study. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, that's Where are those studies? I know. I know. I've got a question for you, Miss Medic. What about <laughs> what about post-holiday blues? What's that all about? Well, so they mentioned that in the um, in the study as well, but it doesn't seem to your those health benefits persist even if you're feeling a bit of the lull that results of going back to day-to-day routine. Your immune, immune system is still like Yeah, and up. even your mental health, even if you f- 
even if you report a temporary sort of adjustment back to your new routine, your depressive, your scores on depression and sort of lowered mood are still better than right. previous to going on holiday. I can see the genetic changes in you already, actually. Can you? Yeah, I can. Do I look younger? <laughs> yes, you, you went away actually a brunette and now you're coming back blonde. Oh, no, I've that? got a great tan too. Not that there's ever a healthy tan. But <laughs> Said the GP. Some, so, yeah. so we need six days off once a month. Is that the take home? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm happy with that. <laughs> with, with booster shots. I don't know how we're going to pay the rent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was also thinking about, so part of my holiday was spent in with another two families. So amongst us there were eight children aged between four and ten. And I wondered whether that may in some way have tempered my, yeah. whether I have the full health benefits. But um, oh. I still, certainly feel rejuvenated. It's something we talk about all the time, you know, in psychology, obviously. Um, I often talk about masterful and pleasurable activities Mm. and we spend so much of our days and weeks and months and years and lives in masterful mode, Mm. you know, things that can be ticked off and feel like you've achieved something and there's a goal and there's so much... uh, there's so much attached to the concept of just doing something just because it's pleasurable and just because mm. it feels great and there's no goal and there's nothing to be achieved, but it comes with so much guilt and it's so loaded uh, yeah. in many cases. And, you know, we will often talk about, you know, could you give, just give yourself permission to do something pleasurable for half an hour every day, maybe an couple of hours every weekend and then maybe like half a day once a month like what would that be like six days in a month six days imagine six days a month that just it's so out of our normal lives isn't it It time management specialists suggest that you actually um roster in your your schedule in your downtime i love the the uh expression of make an appointment with yourself for yourself Mm. Mm. and put, put that in if you sort of work addicted to a diary then you actually can't give up uh, a diary format, but make an appointment with yourself for yourself. I make an appointment with myself every uh, <laughs> night uh, for about three minutes, actually. <laughs> I can't believe that's where you took that conversation. Enter the smut. There we go. Um, I was Did you, say you just else. rolled your eyes at me? That's fantastic. <laughs> I think three times. <laughs> the, the, interestingly, this just encourages okay, you to bring more it all more back. Gonna, <laughs> come on, centre, centre. Um, <laughs> Interestingly, Australians are very good at taking holidays comparative to the rest of the world. When I was doing a bit of research, it was um, I was reading an article which reported that um, over a 12-month period, only 50% of Americans take their annual leave. And they only get a couple of weeks, I believe, yeah. of paid annual leave. So I think... Um, yeah, other parts of the world are really rubbish at taking holidays. Mm. And I think I don't... It's that kind of sense that you can't mm. step away. Mm-hmm. And I think it's certainly that in itself and recognising that you can step away from your work. Like, And I feel that sometimes, stepping away from patients. Mm. Um, but certainly, you know, there are other people that can look after them in my absence and the world keeps turning. And it's very good to be reminded that the world keeps turning when you take a step away from it for mm. a brief moment. Thank you. That was lovely. You're welcome. Holly Doc, what have you been reading about? Oh, I, I've had a fairly <laughs> sombre week, really. So I, um, 
I look. I was pleased to read. So you probably are aware that um, over the last six months, there's been a big federal court um, case involving Johnson and Johnson, so the big international pharmaceutical company, um, and there's a class action against them from. Uh, some Australian women who um, underwent a vaginal mesh procedure. Now, vaginal mesh is a, um, a mesh that is inserted inside the woman to try and alleviate some of um, the symptoms of stress incontinence. So, so particularly after childbirth, um, you know, losing control of your bladder, um, and you know, women describe sneezing or laughing and and having a little dribble when that happens. So. Um, this was sort of sold to Australian women, or in fact was sold to the surgeons who performed this procedure as a very safe and effective method. Um, and as it turns out, unfortunately, uh, many women experienced side effects and complications related to that, um, in particular lots of chronic pain and inability to have sex and a really destroyed young women's lives in, in a period of time when you know, they'd had most of their child um, child birth had already occurred and, you know, the kids were growing up and it was a bit more of their time and they've mm. spent, you know, 20, 30 years with um, significant pain. What was fantastic this week was that um, the, um, the uh, class action asked the judge to consider um, patients that had um, immune-compromised states as part of the class action. So um, in 1980, uh, in the US, there was a warning with vaginal mesh saying that um, if you had an immune deficiency, so for example, if you were on steroids or if you had psoriasis or if you had uh, diabetes, that um, the mesh was less likely to be successful, less likely to take. And there's a lot of evidence that biomaterials inserted into the body uh, don't take very well in immunocompromised patients. So um, Johnson Johnson fought that quite hard, on, but on the Monday the judge said, we're going to consider all those new women who were immunocompromised. So I thought that was a really good result. This case has been going on for six months. Um, you know, I think about these women and what a huge decision it would be to have a sort of surgical procedure and to kind of say, yeah, this this is going so badly that I'm actually going to undergo another intervention to try to fix it and, um, you know, get some of, of my life back and, and not be dealing with this all the time and to then have such huge complications as a consequence of making that decision, which would have been really difficult in the first place, and then to find out that some people may have known this was potential uh, a potential consequence and they didn't um, they weren't informed of that I mean I just it just fills me with rage actually it's, it makes me very angry too which is why I thought it was worth mm. discussing it's it's 1980 that warning went on the US packets and vaginal mesh came to Australia in 97 <sighs> so I'm not going to make it it's before the court so I'm not going to make any yeah. comment but but I think that speaks volumes. Mm. Only Australia? Um, for this class action? or right. yeah, yeah. For this, yeah, this particular class mm. action is Australian women. Um, it's already, I think it's already settled in the States. Um, and I think in Europe, I'm not sure if it was Johnson Johnson. It may have been a different company that brought it to Europe. To, I think it was half of European countries were Johnson Johnson and it was other countries that mm. had another company. Mm. It's just horrible. I've got a couple of things to tell you before we get into our next segment. So we had a call in the break from Roger from New Zealand. I love that we have 
Roger listening to Radiotherapy from New Zealand. But he was calling about the topic we just spoke about, the vaginal mesh um, case. And he said New Zealand was actually the first country in the world to ban vaginal mesh procedures. Um, Happened in December last year. Isn't that amazing? Thanks for that, Roger. Go New Zealand. New Zealand are fantastic with that kind of stuff, I reckon. They're just, they're very proactive and very advanced. Yep. Mm. Female Prime Minister and everything. Uh, And I know, Not the first, I don't know. know. Anyway. Uh, Okay. Let's move on to our first segment today. Dr. Malice, you wanted to talk about dissociation in children and I think we're going to need a bit of uh, education to start with about what dissociation is even. Over to you. Well, uh, rather than dive straight into what it it is, could I ask all of us to imagine rainbows? You know, those sort of curved things in the sky and they've got about five or six colours that we can see and they sort of blend into each other and you can't really see the edge of the red and the Mm. purple and the green and the blue, but you know they're different colours. And they have this uh, ephemeral, amazing, which is why they're, they're just glorious to gaze at. Now, this book that I'm going to offer as a review uses the uh, rainbow as a metaphor for the joy that all children and the child part of us, even if you're a winger on your basketball or softball team, uh, you should be feeling the colours of the rainbow while you play. If you lose, you lose a couple of the colours, but still the rainbow's there. So there are degrees of it. And unfortunately, some children go beyond losing a few of the colours and they go into black or white. They've lost all colour. And when you lose all colour, you can use the metaphor of going black into this sort of more depressive, down energy states, or the white, which is like hyper, and you can't ever talk to such a child because they're on the wall, often misdiagnosed for other conditions, but they may actually be in a very, very agitated state. And they've also lost colour. And so these two extremes of the black and white are where the book ends before treatment begins. So we'll come back to the beginning that dissociation is really in lay terms when we cut off. And it's universal when things don't go our way, if your team loses, you go down into the grey zone. Hopefully, you either have a buddy there or a, a good drink or both a buddy and a drink and you recover after the loss and the next day it's all good and next week, hopefully, your team wins. And that would be called the ordinary ups and downs of life and the arrows and slings and we've got all sorts of wonderful metaphors for this way of coping with life. However, St Kilda fans know that life doesn't always go like that. And for decades, sometimes, the tragics... It used to be Richmond, but no longer. uh, The tragics, you know, just haul themselves off to the MCG and then haul themselves home. And as the decades go and the generations go, and the children, of course, have to keep on barracking for the same team if they want to belong to the family, it becomes a chronic state. And they don't even know when the shine has gone. So we'll leave that sorrowful football group out. Just ordinary citizens because I see your eyes are glazing yeah, over. Yeah, I've cut off. Yeah. Now, <laughs> this is what happens when you get absolutely overwhelmed with boredom. You cut off. You are actually autonomy in a state of dissociation. We've just had a practical demonstration <laughs> in the clinic uh, of the studio. However, this is called relational trauma. 
that I know that you really can't, well, you, it's not that you can't stand, it's just that your level of awareness of football is such that if someone just goes on and on and on, the glazed look comes in and no one's home anymore. So the onus is on the person you're in relationship with to register that and change the topic. So now we're going to go back to the book as Thanks. a review. Thanks okay. for picking up on my boredom. Can yeah. I just ask a question with that um, malice? So if... Um, What's the difference between disengagement? So, for example, if you've got a difficult workplace and culturally it's hard to to make change and you sort of become disengaged as a, as a work person in that, what's the difference between that and dissociation? What a wonderful question because this is actually a universal condition. When things don't go our way, there are only a few things we can do. Uh, we can actually disengage, which is a voluntary act, we think about it, we weigh up the consequences, and neurologically our frontal lobe, the decision executive function is involved. And therefore we choose to disengage and indeed the end point of that is withdraw. And usually if we don't get our way corrected, to hand in our resignation, hopefully not the other way that they fire us because we're disengaged. But this is the first level where we have got our sort of adult capacity to regulate the situation intact. Dissociation goes to a whole other registry where we are totally unaware, in fact, that we are disengaging. And it is the end point of that process. But it happens automatically. So, in fact, the two may overlap. And if we disengage too much, we just may wake up one day, say, look, I just can't cope going anymore and we're already dissociated and we are then cut off and then our behaviour of not going to work is the symptom of dissociation. So just to fast forward a bit, the symptoms that we're looking at in children and adolescents are everyday experiences. A month ago we had a lovely demonstration of a book review and uh, with the childhood issue of brushing teeth came up as a major topic. Now, that seems to be a regular sort of evening or morning struggle with parents and children, and that's called normal. However, if after a while that sort of disengagement becomes a pattern then it's one of the questions we should ask, and certainly by the time they get referred, not just for not brushing teeth, but not attending school, not performing socially or academically, and a number of behaviours and feeling states come into it. Now, this is why The Colours of the Rainbow for this book, which is actually called my first book about dissociation and written by Anna Gomez and Sandra Paulson, both very, very reputable trauma specialists in childhood and adolescence. They provide this book of some 40-odd pages with nearly 30 pages of drawings. And this is the real hook. And this is clinically what I use in my uh, sessions, often with parents who just don't get it because this is not an easy idea to get that their mm. child is switched off, cut off. Now, disengagement would be the term I used for switch off and dissociation would be cut off. And that's the difference. While you're switching off, you've got some element of choice and, you know, a bit of pep talk, come on, it's time to brush the teeth. Yep, they hop to it and they go. If they're dissociated, they're so cut off, you're not talking even with them anymore, you're talking at them. 
And then parents get frustrated. The child often then is so agitated that they behave in a sort of what is called outrageous way. Then punishments come in and a terrible cycle gets set up. And this then becomes ingrained. And no one ever thinks that this is a child who's actually disconnected and cut off. So one of the questions becomes is why do children get cut off? What, what's the cause? And each of us have got our own triggers. So events happen to all of us in life. And from events, we translate that event into an experience that's personal. So if the child's not brushing their teeth and there's a sort of more compassionate, come on, it's good for you and we'll do a bit of bribing maybe for a few days, that's a totally different experience of saying, well, if you don't do it, then you're grounded. So the event already goes into an experience in the relationship. If mum and dad or the caregivers are committed to this control pattern, then the experience actually becomes an environmental trigger. The loud voice, the tone of disapproval, the gestures, the punishment, the consequences, and the child says, oh, this is really awful, I'm hurting I may even be a bit scared, you know, mum's voice or dad's face or the threat. That's scary. So when you get into scary, you get into hurt, you get into confused. This Sometimes parents don't do this every night. And so the child might think after two nights, oh, that was a bit of a heat wave. Now we're back to normal. And then three days later, it starts again. That inconsistency gets confusing for a child. So they would be three sort of patterns of it's hurtful, it's scary, it's confusing. Now, once the dissociation, the cutoff is in place, of course it can be recovered. You can reconnect and say, you know, the child does fall into line or the parent who was so, so stressed says, okay, look, I'm sorry I made a big deal out of the brushing teeth. Like, let's try off on a new page. And then it's repaired and everything's back to ground zero. It's good. I was just going to ask at this point, so dissociation is sort of a more um, serious reaction to some some experience the child's having. And then, because I've heard of dissociative identity disorder, is that then another level of cutting off? Thank you. That's exactly where we're going, that there are degrees there's, there's the mild, which is this back and forth. You can dissociate, switch off, cut off, and then back again. The moderate, where it lasts for two, three, four weeks, a few months. And then if it's not attended to, and the attending is being aware. Like I was aware with autonomy going glazed on her eye, so I changed. If I just kept on rambling on about football, I mean, she would dissociate chronically and be at risk and quite rightly blame me for being the agent who creates the dissociative identity on the panel. Now that is in the extreme situation and children actually are plastic and fluid and ever so forgiving. So you've got a lot of recovery possible. It is really at the end of the spectrum where there's say we've had a Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse, where the institutional staff are incapable of this level of attending to. And those very, very at-risk children and adolescents, as they grow up, are what we, by adulthood, say have a dissociative 
identity and you call it a disorder but actually it's a normal reaction it's not a disorder because it was a normal reaction to very very hurtful scary beginnings and dissociation is a defense it's a way of surviving you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking with Dr Malice about the concept of dissociation and specifically how to pick it up in children and adolescents. Dr Malice, we're talking about dissociation and specifically dissociation in children and adolescents. Uh, back to you. Well, part two is what happens when the bright shiny me, the all-coloured rainbow starts to fade. And there's some of me, a couple of the rainbow colours, or in the extreme, as we just mentioned before the break in the dissociative identity disorder, where there's none of me. There's actually another me that gets formed. So this is a spectrum that goes from just a few little sort of smudges in the rainbow to a couple of dropouts of colours to actually none of me is shiny anymore. And that's the serious end point. Now, if we just take the ways to treat this we might then look backwards of how we can prevent it because obviously what we'd like to be in is a mode of prevention an ounce of prevention is a ton of cure and so let's just really emphasize the serious end not because that's the most common but because it'll give us lessons about how to prevent it and so for here we really need to understand just a little bit of what happens actually in the brain and the key phrase is amygdala hijack that is that in the too muchness of scariness too muchness of hurtness too much of confusion the front part of the brain actually is disconnected and that's why in fact children or the child part of us cannot make decisions anymore we're in this cut off in physical terms or neurophysiological terms it means the links between our amygdala the smoke sensing danger risk center and how to cope with it the front part the frontal cortex is cut off literally there are no messages going back and forth so understanding that basis of the problem it's self-evident what we're going to try to do what are we going to try to do is fire up those connections so how do we know we can fire them up? Fortunately, about 20 years ago, uh, 1989, 90, so yeah, over 20 years ago, that's over 20 years ago, or just on 20 years ago, uh, Shapiro introduced a treatment called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. In the beginning, it was thought, oh, here's another one of those American wacko treatments, you know, tap your knee and follow my finger as the therapist goes from the left to the right and you're meant to follow the gaze. Over 20 years, the science of this has been proven. It is now one of the mainstream treatments for traumatic dissociation. And in fact, one of the authors, in fact, both are experts in the field as well and have written on childhood and adolescent EMDR. The principle here is you reprocess the traumatic cutoff. And by doing a tapping movement with one hand and following the eye of the, the finger of the therapist going like a metronome in front of you, to left, to right, to left, to right, you are engaging two separate parts of the brain at the same time and relinking the cutoff part. If you don't want to go to such formality, there's now 
tons of books and therapists who are expert on art therapy for children. We've had, in fact, in this studio, music therapy at the Royal Children's Hospital. All of these non-language therapies, music, art, EMDR, engage what is called the right brain rather than the language left brain. And it is the right brain frontal lobe that's a primarily site of cut-off disconnection. So using these techniques, these are tools that are now well established in mainstream science and now in clinical medicine. Uh, This is the way the treatment for the severe cases reconnects them and therefore hopefully prevents the adult serious onset of dissociative identity disorders. Lolly Doc. What do you like about this book, Alice? Like All the Colours of Me, my first book about dissociation, what is it that you like about it? There, Cup, thank you for that, because I just, I'm in love with this book, actually. <laughs> Partly because I wish I would have had that when I was training 30, 40 years ago in child psychiatry. We didn't even know about childhood, or dissociation wasn't a topic that we could think about. Now it is mainstream. So I love that in my lifetime, this change has occurred in the last arc of the last 20 years, especially. Secondly, in my clinical practice, I actually show this book to parents. And just last week, I had a very, very upset mum and dad. The father was really at, at loggerheads with his teenage son, and they just couldn't get to understand each other. And he came in, he said, you know, I'm against a wall. And he was clearly frustrated. They love their children, but couldn't do anything else. I said, let me show you this book. I showed him the drawing where the scale of disconnection from mild, moderate to severe is drawn. It's an extraordinary uh, image. And the father just sort of settled in front of my eyes. He became quite tearful. And he said, I wish I would have known when they were born that this is possible. Mm. It's just that level of awareness. Now, I've been struggling with this mother-father who love their children, they're doing the best they can, but they cannot recognise disconnection. And it took this drawing, and you could see the, the father sort of melt from his agitation to compassion. And he said, oh, I think this is going to be a different weekend. Now, you've got to love a book that's got this power. Remind us again what it's called. This is a book called All the Colours of Me, my first book about dissociation written by Anna Gomez and Sandra Poulsen and illustrated also by Sandra 2016. Thank you, Dr Mullis. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. All right. We are going to finish the show with a segment from Lolly Doc today about problems with private health. You've got... 10 minutes, Lolly Dog. What uh, do you want to tell us? I love I love the little countdown at the start. Um, <laughs> so I really, I just want to start a conversation about where we're at with private health insurance in 2018 and, and, and couch it in a little bit of historical terms and maybe present the concept that things are not going all that well. Hmm. Um, do you guys know how many of the 37 for-profit health insurance companies in Australia are profitable? I don't even know the word. I've got so many questions. 37? No, lower. 35? Low. It's much lower than that. 10? Just a little bit higher. So 13 out of 37 are profitable. Is that all? That's all. Okay. Okay. So that's that's the for-profit organisations and they probably raise about $4 billion of which the tax 
amount is it, they, they have a take home about $1.8 billion between them. So it's still a profitable industry for those people who are making a profit, which is predominantly the shareholders of those companies. Do you guys remember when Medicare came into Australia? I do not remember. Malice? 1970s with Whitlam. So, yeah, so Medibank was 1975. So that was the first kind of attempt at universal health care in Australia. And then uh, almost a decade later, so 1984, Medicare came in with Hawke. Mm. Um, and at that, st- at that stage, 54% of the population had private health insurance and that declined to about 33% very quickly after the introduction of Medicare, over about 10 years, down to about 30%. So I, I just want to present that because it's important to understand that people at that time were voting with their feet and saying, well, I've got a public... Um, public system here now, the universal healthcare system that I don't have to pay for, and I'm going to leave my private health insurance. And a significant number of people did that. And in fact, most of the people who did that were in their 20s and 30s. And I just want, so I just want you to keep that bit of information in the back of your head. Where are we now in 2018? How did we get to where we're at now? So in 1999, so in fact, in fact, before then, Um, the Howard government introduced a Medicare levy. So that was for high income earners, over $100,000. They would pay an additional 1% uh, surcharge on their tax, which would go towards the the funding of universal healthcare for everyone. So it was a way of kind of diverting tax to um, more affluent um, people in Australia. In 1999, they introduced the insurance rebate. Okay, I, I think all of us here on the panel would remember that, perhaps. Yeah. So um, that was a rebate. That was it was a compulsory rebate if you wanted to um, have a uh, cheaper premium on your insurance from the age of I think it was 25 or 30, something like that. Um, so you would actually have a two percent less uh, premium if you took up private health insurance. And and not surprisingly, people suddenly went from about 30% private health insurance to about 46% health insurance. And in fact, the people who took that up were the 20 to 30 year olds who said, hang on a second, I don't wanna pay a whole lot extra as I get older, I'm going to take up this health insurance. And that was the aim of of, of that particular rebate. What's the problem with that? Who, Who uses private health insurance? Do you guys know? The elderly? The elderly, yeah, right. So, so um, which is not a problem for the elderly. I, and I personally believe that we should be caring for the health of our elderly population. But it's a significant problem in terms of the diversion of, of money. Essentially, it was a tax on the young to provide health care for the elderly because they're the people who are using their private health insurance. So where are we at now? We're at a point where health premiums have increased uh, at a percentage which far outstrips um, CPI. So 3.95% was the latest increase in your health premium. So if you've had health insurance, you'll notice a big whack coming out of your monthly bill. CPI is, I don't know what CPI is about, it's about 2% at the moment, even lower. So that's a significant cost. Why is that? Why, why are we paying extra in premiums? The reason that we're paying extra in premiums is that the young have decided this is a really silly idea that, in fact, we're not getting money for jam. 
And so they've left in droves. So if you look at the graph of the 20 to 30-year-olds who are essentially driving private health care premiums, they have actually left in significant proportions in the last few years. My suspicion is with these further increases, we'll have even more dramatic losses of that bulk of people. Where does that leave us? It leaves us, we'll leave us with a private health insurance system where the elderly, the population of the elderly patients are increasing. So we've got an aged population. The young who are funding uh, that healthcare are leaving. What's going to happen to premiums? They'll go up. How far up are they going to go and how much will people be prepared to pay? And the answer is not much more, I think. And then more people will leave. And then more people will leave. So where do the people go when they want healthcare? The public health. The public health system. So I, I think I just wanted to present that as a kind of historical... Mm. Um, I think it's a significant problem and I don't think either, gov- either sides of government uh, have really come up with a plan that, that addresses what to do about that. Mm. Because I think it's going to be actually much more rapid than we think it'll be. This is not going to be a 30, 40 year change. I think we're talking 10 years. Dr Malice. Well, you pose a a scenario that's almost sounding inevitable. And uh, sadly, there is actually a working model of where this leads to. And that is the American health system. And that is a clear cut inequity in two tiers. Those who afford have the best, and in America, as is generally known, there's something like 40 million people out of the 300 plus, uh, 300 million plus, who have got no, below the poverty line. So if we come from a background, as you elegantly highlighted, where the social justice predominated for the last part of the last century. We are now washing that out of our social justice conscience and where this is heading is an American model of a two-tier with a big, huge gap in the middle and uh, unfortunately uh, a population that will be not able to be coped with in the public sector. And therefore you have the American model as where it's heading. One of the difficulties um, or one of the, one of the ways that um, private health has aimed to, um, I guess, uh, address that, and in fact that's what you're describing, they're, they're providing uh, a multi-tier model of care for people. So one of the largest healthcare, uh, in, sorry, health insurance providers in the last six months changed their um, inclusion and exclusion criteria for hospitals. So they were forcing people to utilise particular hospitals, particular healthcare providers, those people who may, for example, have offered a cheaper uh, option. They were cut out of um, that health insurance model and so the more expensive people were... were, were ch- so as a, as a way to recoup um, money. So uh, there's already uh, starting to be a multi-tier system in, within private as well and I think that's extraordinary. It's actually history repeating itself because in the late 1990s we wrote a couple of books called She Won't Be Right Mate and She Still Won't Be Right Mate in 1997-1999 about managerialism 
in healthcare. And at that stage, over now 20 years ago, the model of the American healthcare system was totally governed by profit finances. And that's why we actually chose the title. Shirley Prager, a colleague of mine, coined the phrase, she won't be right, mate, referring to this is the inevitable path that such managerialism leads to. And sadly, it's, we're on the cusp of it. I'm tempted to ask you, Lolly Doc, what you think the answer is, but I think that's pretty unfair. Um, I actually, I, I don't know what the answer is because we obviously don't have an infinite uh, resource pool for public health mm. and that's become very clear. I think we're going to have to have enormous societal conversations about who gets healthcare, how long they get healthcare for. They're really difficult, horrible conversations. And where do we put the money? And, yeah. And, um just to add a little tidbit from my general practice perspective, but watch general practice. It's becoming a privatised model um, and we are losing GP-run clinics day by day and therefore this, the kind of care we provide is changing. So think about where you go. Think about what you use your money on. Uh, think about it in seeing your a GP-run clinic, not a corporate model. Good conversation to be starting and to be continued, obviously. You are listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and that is the end of our show today. Thank you, Dr Malice, Lolly, Doc, Miss Medic and Kent and Radiotherapy will be back at 10am next week. See you then. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.